There are two types of kids, generally speaking, when it comes to mud. There are those who avoid it, they walk around it, they're very particular with their shoes and their clothes, and at all costs, they make the effort to keep things nice and clean. You can really tell that at recess, the kids that want to stay clean. But then there's these other kids that seem to be drawn to mud like a magnet. Given the opportunity, they will kick off their shoes or toss their socks on the wet grass. They'll find the mud, they'll, they'll stick their feet down in the mud and they'll feel the mud oozing through their little toes. And they love it. If there's mud in the neighborhood, they're going to find it. Now, I'm curious tonight, how many of you, I just described you, you would seek out the mud, and if at a good day was the more mud you got into? Anybody? There's, there's quite a few of you. That surprised me. I thought there might be like a couple. So we got some mud lovers here. How many else? No, not me. I'm going to stay proper and not get my clothes messed up. I think somebody raised their hand twice, so uh, maybe you're conflicted. Some days mud, some days not mud. Adults at times can feel the pull into the mud, metaphorically speaking. An ancient king wrote about time he clocked in the mud. In Psalm 40, verse 2, David writes about time spent in a slimy pit, in the mud and the mire. The ESV, English Standard Version, describes it as, quote, a pit of destruction, a miry bog. Miry bog got my attention because I think bog is kind of a fun word. And so I looked it up. I found out that it's only mentioned this one time in all of Scripture. It means wet, muddy ground too soft to support a heavy body. A wetland that accumulates deposits of dead plant material. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? Often mosses. Other names for bogs include mire and quagmire and muskig. Hadn't heard that before. Alkaline mires are called fens. F-E-N-S. Sound familiar, Bostonians? As in Boston's own, the fens. It gives new meaning to Fenway Park. Now today, in our text in Psalm 40, David finds himself in a life situation where he's stuck in the fens, living with a foundation too soft to support his life. It's hard to get traction. It's hard for him to find his footing. We don't know why David ends up in this miry bog until 10 verses later, when he says, for evils have encompassed me by number, my iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. It's, like, it's likely David is describing a season in his life when he started down a slippery slope and landed in the miry bog. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 in the Old Testament. It started with a decision to be idle. Now, kings are supposed to go out to war with their men. But David made the decision to stay at home, to be idle. And then he sees a woman bathing. Now, the first glance is not necessarily his fault, but what happens after that, he's got to own. You see, he fetches her. By the way, David is married 
and she is married. He sleeps with her. He impregnates her. Then he orders her husband, who's a good man, to the front line of battle where he dies. So David is responsible for not only adultery, but murder. Now, it's important that we understand that this is a man described not once but twice in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. What this tells me is if this could happen to David, this could happen to anybody. A man after God's own heart. His description, evils have encompassed me. Sin has overtaken me. What is sin? It's times we miss the mark of God's expectations for us. Iniquities have overtaken him. He cannot see a way out, and his heart has failed him. To me, when I see heart has failed him, it's that he went with the impulses of his emotion rather than thinking through the ramifications of that decision, those decisions that he made. No one is immune to time spent in the fens, the miry bog. Once there, honesty serves one well. It's that moment that we identify the problem, and we identify the problem when we look in the mirror. You see, these are the situations that we can't blame anybody else. We have to own it. We say, I've messed up, and I'm in a mess. No one is to blame besides me. I stayed on the slippery slope, and I seriously lost my footing. Now I'm stuck. We've identified the problem, but the problem is really the human condition. You see, there will be times for every person that they create their own mess. How do we know it's true for every person on earth? Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And listen to this. There is none who does good, not even one. This is really good for those that are inclined to have a self-righteous view of themselves, to understand, no, we're all in the same company. As if it weren't enough that we would see this in the Old Testament. Paul latches on to this thought in the book of Romans, the letter he writes to the church at Rome. And he says this, quoting from Psalm 14, there is no one righteous, not even one. Also in chapter three of Romans, he says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So again, everyone not only has the potential, but there is, again, the common ground that we all stand on. So when, not if we get stuck in the fins, we do well to ask, what promise was broken? What did I believe in that let me down? It's not a promise I broke, but a promise that broke me. You see, there is always a promise. For David, Lust gave the promise of satisfaction. Murder gave the promise of absolution. If I take out Bathsheba's husband, then I can bury this. Nobody will ever know. That was a lie. 
a promise that was a lie. Today's culture offers a lot of false promises, and this where it kind of gets personal and, and up-to-date for all of us. One of which is broken promises and relationships. Too often the promises of loyalty, unconditional love, friendship, availability, empathy, compassion, and consistency are broken. What we expect from family and friends, and quite honestly what they would expect from us, can disappoint and leave one or both parties wounded and disillusioned. Then there's the broken promise of sexual impurity. Today's culture condones pretty much any form of sex outside of marriage. The promise is that of pleasure and fulfillment, often without commitment. But even with commitment, it's often without a lifetime covenant meaning either party can walk away at any time. Sex outside of marriage fails to deliver its promises. Marriage, however, offers a relationship of being loved and known for a lifetime. Not a moment, not a season, but a lifetime. Tim Keller writes, to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. This is the promise of marriage. Last Wednesday, Shelly and I celebrated 38 years of living out this promise to be fully known and truly loved. And we celebrated. We celebrated God's faithfulness over 38 years. Pornography is also a colossal flop in terms of what it promises. While demeaning the image of the opposite or same sex it offers no personal relationship or intimacy. It promises fulfillment, but grossly fails to deliver on its promise. Rather, it often results in an oppressive addiction. A third type of promise is associated with one's career. The career climb that is built on ethical compromises and or a workaholic schedule that promises satisfaction that comes with position or money. But it seriously disappoints for two reasons. First, neither possession or money has ever guaranteed happiness. And then second, at the end of the day, character. Character is the only legacy that matters. Friends, the reality is that anything or anyone that makes a promise it cannot keep can lead us down the road to a miry bog. If you find yourself stuck in the fens, not geographically, but physically or spiritually, I ask you to search deeper. It's not enough to just identify that you're stuck in this muddy place that you can't seem to get out of, you can't find your footing in life. 
That's the beginning. But what is more important, I believe, is to search deeper. Don't just ask what promise deceived you, but consider the deep yearning inside that made you susceptible to believe the false promise. In other words, what was the engine that was driving the chase for maybe something that I mentioned or it could be something else? Perhaps it was a search for intimacy, companionship, pleasure, security, or identity. All these things are important to us. There's a yearning deep inside of us that calls out for these things. If you ponder carefully, perhaps you will find a neglect of something or someone contributed to the slide downward. Perhaps you neglected the wisdom of a friend, the counsel of a mentor. Perhaps you neglected your inner voice speaking caution, hold up, don't do this. Perhaps you neglected an accountable relationship that you once had, or meditating on scripture, or maybe simply isolating yourself from a community like this. Neglect in any of these areas can breed vulnerability to various deceptions. So what can we do, or is it a matter of doing? How should we approach it when, again, not if, we find ourselves stuck in the miry bog? Modern culture says, shrug it off, try again, better luck next time. That's about all culture will give you is luck. Human nature, however, screams, you must do something. You must pay the price of the lesson learned. Like paying a parking ticket at City Hall. Anybody ever paid a parking ticket in Boston? Anybody not paid a parking ticket in Boston? Once you've paid the fine, your slate is clean. You can start over. The church has a history of this sort of thing. It's called penance. And in some streams of Christianity, there's a way that you could pay money or work it off in the church and find absolution and come into God's good graces again. That feeds human nature, the doing something. The only problem is the inner yearning hasn't been addressed. So there's a very good chance the destructive pattern will continue again and again and again. Just like paying the parking ticket does not ensure that you're not going to get another one or another one or another one. There is, however, a third way, and it's a better way. It's called the good news. The good news counters both culture and human nature by saying the answer is not about better luck next time or doing something. Rather, the gospel simply says it's not in the doing but in the receiving that transformation is possible. In the receiving, the inner yearnings that cry out for peace and intimacy and joy and fulfillment and companionship are met. This is what David received and he was most grateful. He writes about it in Psalm 40, verse 1. 
I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written on my heart. And then the next couple of verses speak of David's unrestrained public worship. A time where he would come into a place, maybe kind of like this, but where God's people would gather and praise would be on his lips and in his heart and he would unrestrained offer praise to God. Listen to these words of the one that's delivered from the miry bog. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Unrestrained praise from this man who's been delivered. And then he speaks of God's unrestrained mercy. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Mercy will be given lavishly to David. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Psalm 40 ends with these two verses. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. The gift of mercy, motivated by love and administered in faithfulness, is what God offers the person who humbles themselves in the miry fens of broken promises. In the last book of the Bible, we are told that God makes all things new. This is one of the great promises in Scripture. We can feel like we have blown it so bad that we could never be loved again, that we could never experience life again, hope again, a new chapter again. But coming to Jesus, he offers this amazing gift where he can make all things new for us. This is about salvation, but I think it's also for those that are living for Christ, but they have somehow, some way, hit the slippery slope and they found themselves in the miry bog. And there's hope that even there can be a new season of life and peace and joy and vitality for one. Escape from the Fins takes on a deeper meaning than one graduating from Berkeley, Northeastern, or BU. The escape is about a life getting traction on solid footing. The good news includes addressing the deep yearnings of the human condition 
to be truly loved and fully known. A deep love despite knowing one's flaws. Our first water baptism at Anchor was at Castle Island. We loved it so much we've gone back every year. We'll be there again in September. The terrain on the east side of Castle Island is very different than the west side. We were on the east side the first year. The terrain is very rocky under the water and the tide was especially low. Some of you were there that day. The combination of the two, there was a long walk on very, very slippery rocks out to the baptismal area and back. I was ill-equipped for that journey. I was wearing flip-flops. The rocks chewed them up. That's the only way I can describe it. The walk back to the shore was treacherous. I slipped and fell numerous times. My legs were cut on the sharp rocks. I left the water rejoicing in my heart for the baptisms, but actually quite embarrassed that in front of the whole congregation I had slipped so many times coming out of the water. And for quite a while I had the scars to show it. But the lie was exposed. We found a better place the next year for baptism. It was on the west side. Nice sand, no rocks, no cuts, scrapes, scars, no flip-flops either. I learned that lesson as well. No more walking on the fence. What about you? In closing tonight, as we move into a time of response, is there an area in your life that you bought into a false promise that the world makes? Tim Keller adds, Satan doesn't control us with fang marks in the flesh. He controls us with lies in the heart, deception. If you believe lies, like we've said, you're not alone, and there's a way back. Everybody at some point believes in some sort of a lie. As I mentioned, David, a man after God's own heart, did. So we're in good company. The key, though, is addressing that inner yearning that made you vulnerable, that makes me vulnerable to believing the lies. This inner yearning is satisfied by receiving the life in Christ through a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful way to see how the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in harmony. You see, the Holy Spirit works to expose the lie. In God's presence tonight, perhaps a lie that you have been wrestling with has been exposed. That's not me, but it's the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart where you know there's like this identification, there's this impression that this is for you and your life, and that's the Holy Spirit that works and reveals that to us. And if you have that communicated to you, your spirit, I encourage you to hold on to that and embrace it and don't let it go, but deal with it now and recognize that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you in a personal way. The work of Jesus, the second 
one in the Trinity is that he has paid the once and for all payment, the price to deal with the lie. It's called the cross. His very blood that was shed, his life, his death, as we sang, is for every moment. It's for those moments that we're in the miry bog, in the fens. It's for the moments where we're on the mountaintop and everything. But, but the life and the death of Christ is for every moment. His blood avails for every moment such as this. The role of the Father is to extend lavishly mercy and love. He's like that big papa, that big grandpa that just said, come and just sit on my lap, draw near to my footstool, and let's be together. The Trinity working in harmony, satisfying the deepest desires that we have, these underlying yearnings that make us susceptible to believing false promises. There is a way to escape the fins. It's not in the doing, but it's in the receiving. Let's pray together.